morning. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We have been in this book for a couple years now, and we have finally made it to chapter 18. As we talked about last week, chapter 18 is a chapter about family. How do we treat God's family? How do we relate with each other as God's family? Last week we talked about how we care for each other. We're supposed to care about God's children. This week we're going to look at verses 10 to 20 and look at more ways to care for the church. The title of the sermon this morning is Pursuing God's Children. Pursuing God's Children. Jesus is going to talk here about confronting each other's sin. He understands that we are going to sin against each other. Christians are going to sin against each other. Surprise! Like, we're going to sin against each other. We're going to offend each other and hurt each other. So Jesus also knows that sheep, his children, will stray at times, and they need other sheep to go after them, to pursue them. And so concern and even correction of each other is necessary in the church. And he gives us some guideposts on how we are to go about doing that. Other Christians in sin, how do we pursue them in love? So we'll look at this morning, at this morning. look at Matthew 18 with me, uh, the whole chapter here. Matthew 18 Right in the middle, verses 15 to 20, we're going to be reading here in just a bit about what to do when someone sins against you. When someone sins against you. And oftentimes, you will hear discussed church discipline. This is a key passage on church discipline. And sadly, many churches do not practice church discipline. For them, they get to this passage or this topic and they say, you know, church discipline, that's a, it's a bad word. It's like liverwurst. Or like Limburger cheese, when you put those two and two together. But I want to build a sandwich here by looking at Matthew 18. And it's not going to include liverwurst or Limburger. Let's build a sandwich. Notice how chapter, uh, verses 15 and 20, right there in the middle. Church discipline, confronting each other in their sin. Notice how it's between two parables. Jesus, before he even mentions that, he, talks, he gives a parable about the wandering sheep and the shepherd who goes after them. Who pursues that sheep. Right after that, he tells a parable about the unforgiving servant and teaches his disciples about forgiveness. So this is all designed by Jesus to fit together. He's not just throwing in a topic about church discipline. He's combining this all together to teach us a couple of things. And here's what we see. That confronting sin in the church is to be motivated first by a loving pursuit of others. We see that in the parable of the shepherd and the sheep. It's got to be motivated by pursuing others, and it's marked by genuine forgiveness of that person when they repent. That's what we're going to see in the parable next week. And right in the middle of our passage this morning, what we see, it's not, it's not liverwurst. We see that we have a responsibility to pursue in love Christians when they sin with a goal of reconciliation, with a goal of restoration. When sheep fall into the pit of sin... We don't just walk by and say, oh, bummer, you're in a pit. Keep walking. We go after them. God sends out his church to go after his strange sheep with love and with gentleness. So we'll look at that this morning. That in mind, let's look at our text, verses 10 to 20. Direct your eyes to what Holy Scripture says. Verse 20, excuse me, verse 10, Jesus says this. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. 
For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is God's word for his people. And may the Lord now bless the preaching of his word and the receiving of his word. We see three key parts in Jesus' teaching here that we're going to look at. Three points. First, God's pursuit of his lost sheep, the pattern for our pursuit of lost sheep, and finally, the promises for us as we pursue others. So let's look at point number one, the the pursuit. Pursuit, we're going to see this in verses 10 to 14 in the parable that Jesus tells us. Look again at verse 10. Jesus says this, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Remember last week, let's remember what Jesus talked about past couple weeks, the beginning of chapter 18. Quick refresher, Jesus said disciples of Jesus Christ are humble, right? And disciples of Jesus Christ are humble, which means they don't lead other Christians to sin or to stray. They care about other Christians, especially the ones who are weak, discarded, ignored, lowly. Why? Well, verse 10, because of the angels. Don't despise other Christians because of the angels. What's Jesus saying here? He's talking about angels all of a sudden. Some people come to this passage and they have this, this belief that everybody has an individual guardian angel. And they say, well, look, every little one has their angels right there. Here, it's in this verse. I'm not sure that's what this is saying. Or we can build a theology from the rest of the Bible on a theology of individual guardian angels. Per se. So what's Jesus saying? Why is he bringing up angels at this point? Well, I believe what he's saying is, his point is, we aren't to look down on other Christians. Why? Because God cares about every single one of his little ones. God cares about every single one of his disciples. And you want proof of that? You want proof of that? Each one is represented by angels who have access, daily access before the throne of God and are sent out by God to protect his little ones. And so you want to harm another Christian. You want to harm another Christian. Watch out, because they got an angel army on their side that God will send out to protect them and to provide for them. I believe that's what Jesus is saying here. And he goes on from there to tell us a parable. Verse 10, verse 12, he tells us a parable. Let's do some math here. You may have noticed verse 11 is missing in your Bibles. If you've got an ESV, or perhaps it's included in others, but ESV at least, it's not included. We had a verse missing. What's that mean? Well, it means that in several manuscripts that were written thousands of years ago, 
Verse 11 appears in other manuscripts. Verse 11 doesn't appear. And so looking at all these manuscripts, it doesn't seem like verse 11 was authentic. If you want to know what that verse was or is, look at your footnote or go to Luke 15 where Jesus tells the same parable and includes that verse. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Why isn't it here? I think good study this week is read Luke 15. Jesus tells this parable, but it's a different approach. Jesus says there's a shepherd who goes after a lost sheep. And his approach there is evangelistic. Jesus goes to unbelievers, goes and saves all of us who were once lost. Here in Matthew 18, Jesus tells this story, but his concern is about Christians when they are wandering. They're wandering into sin. They're wandering away from the church and from others. And his point is, Jesus goes after them. So, verse 12, Jesus tells a story. A man has 100 sheep. One of them goes astray. He leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. Astray. We see the word astray here three times. These are sheep. These are God's sheep and they're wandering from the flock and they're drifting away. And what does the shepherd do? Shepherd pursues the sheep. And when he finds it, verse 13, he rejoices over it. You find your sheep, you rejoice. He's overjoyed. Who's the shepherd? God himself going after the wandering sheep. That's what verse 14 says. It's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Here's the point. God is concerned about each of his little children. Every single one of his sheep. So much so that he seeks after them and if he finds them, he's overjoyed. So his, his point to us is don't cause another Christian to stumble. Don't cause them to stray. Care about the sheep. Why? Because God cares about the sheep. Every single one of them. Enough that he might pursue them. This parable goes back to the Old Testament to Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, we find a a bad situation. God is prophesying against the leaders of Israel. Why? The leaders of Israel are are called shepherds, and they have a flock. They have the sheep that they are to care for. What are they doing? They're shepherds, and they're abusing the sheep. They're not feeding the sheep. They're feeding themselves. They're not chasing after sheep who are lost and going astray. The weak sheep, they don't care about the weak sheep. They're letting them scatter around. So God comes in and prophesies and says, you are a bunch of bad shepherds. You are not doing what you're called to do. And God says, Ezekiel 34, verse 11, he says, Thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and seek them out. You're not doing it, so I'm going to do it. Flip our Bibles over to the New Testament, John 10. Jesus says, I'm that person. I'm that shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. The bad shepherd, you know what the bad shepherd does? He's a hired hand. When the wolves come, these are my sheep. I don't care about that. I'm out of here. Like somebody else deal with these guys. I'm out. I'm running. I'm abandoning the sheep. And Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. But when the wolves come, I protect my sheep. I'm the good shepherd that I call my sheep. They know my name. They know my voice. Guess what? I'm the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. That's what he's doing here in Matthew 18. Back to Matthew 18. God goes on a rescue mission to restore his sheep who are straying in sin, running from him. Here we see God's intimate, personal concern for every single one of his children. That means... You're a child of God here this morning. 
God is intimately and personally concerned about you. So much that He's willing to go after you when you're straying from Him. What kind of shepherd leaves 99 sheep who after one? God does. Loves even the one so much He's willing to go after them. So listen, if, if you came here this morning and you feel like, man, I'm feeling weak today. I feel like I'm tempted to stray. I see the things out there and I want them. I'm feeling like I'm full of doubts. I feel like I'm sinning and I'm struggling with something this morning. Here's the encouragement. God, God doesn't lose his sheep. They may be treated wrongly. They may, be, they may stray. He's going to pursue. He, he loves his sheep enough to discipline them so he can bring them back. He loves his sheep enough to send the church after them to go bring them back. He loves his sheep enough to send them a thorn in the flesh to bring them back. But he will not lose his sheep. He will not lose his little ones. There's security for those who are in Jesus Christ. Because you have a good shepherd who's going to pursue you. Here's the call of this parable to us, to to pastors of the church, to leaders of the church, to the whole church. To see the example of Christ. And when you see a brother or sister in this church, another Christian, who doesn't appear at church for a while, at Sunday gathering, who seems to be struggling and straying into sin, the ways of the world, go after them. A text, a call, an email showing up at their house, inviting them over, going after them. Not saying, hey, that's somebody else's problem. I haven't seen him for a while. I hope somebody does something going after them. That's the call of this passage. When a sheep is strained, don't desert the sheep. Go after the sheep and pursue them. Here's why Jesus starts with this parable. He points us to God's pursuit of lost sheep, wandering sheep, Lost sheep like you and I, who were once lost, dead in our sin, and he pursued us. He points us to that. And watch the turn he makes. He then calls us to pursue wandering sheep. So we see the pursuit, and then God says, hey, now you do it. Now you go pursue the sheep. Here's what that looks like. Here's what the pattern looks like. So point number two, let's look at the pattern Jesus lays out, beginning in verse 15. We see this in 15 to 17. Jesus gives us a pattern for how to pursue lost, wandering sheep. Verse 15 says, if your brother sins against you. So, when that happens, what do you do? Well, the Lord gives us a gracious gift here in Matthew 18 on how to pursue others. And look at the purpose. Verse 15. If you confront your brother and he listens, you have gained your brother. That's the purpose. You want to gain your brother back. I see you in sin. You sinned against me. I'm going to go after you because I want to gain you back. The NIV says, one, I want to win you. I want to win you back to where the Lord has called you to go. That's the goal. This process here that Jesus is going to lay out, it's all redemptive. It's beginning to end. Every stage there's to be love, patience, and a continued desire. Continued desire for restoration with a brother or sister who is wandering. So we aim to win over another Christian. And don't mishear me. We're not winning them, like arguing with them. Win them over in in an unhealthy way. Like, you're in sin. Get over here. I'm not trying to win an argument with them. I'm trying to win them back to Jesus. I want to gain my brother or sister. But listen, there's there's no sense. This is confrontation, right? Confrontation. Oh, no, confrontation. There's no sense of confrontation without love here in what Jesus says. You know what confrontation without love is? It's cancel. Cancel culture. It's what we're surrounded by. 
You messed up. You sinned. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. Done with you. Dismiss you. I don't need you anymore. That's what we're surrounded by. That's the air we breathe. Increasingly so. That's not what a disciple of Jesus Christ does. A disciple of Jesus Christ doesn't cancel or dismiss another Christian because they sinned against you. A disciple of Jesus Christ pursues somebody in sin or who sins against them even when it's hard, even when it's awkward, even when it's messy. Why? Because it's the loving thing to do. It's what the king commands them to do. A disciple of Jesus Christ is marked by pursuit of others. So as, as, we all, as we all confront others, and this is hard, confronting another person with love and gentleness, it's, it's not easy to do. Sometimes if your man gets in the way, we, we don't want to do it. We just move on. Somebody else would do it. It's hard. Jesus calls us to do it. We want to save. We want to love other Christians in our midst. So when we go in pursuit, we have a genuine desire to see them repent and be restored. And here's the thing. We go to them humbly. Why do I say humbly? Because we realize, hey, that sin that you're struggling with, man, I could be falling into that same pit myself. I have fallen in that same pit myself. Outside of Jesus Christ rescuing me, I'd be in that same pit. So we go humbly to them. How do we do that? How do we get that attitude? We remember that God pursued us in our sin. He's the good shepherd who laid down his life, who gave his blood to seek and save the lost, which was you, which was me. He came to rescue us, to reconcile us to God. So why do we pursue reconciliation with others? Because God pursued reconciliation with us. And we get that attitude of, I'm going to go to you humbly, I'm going to go to you with love and gentleness because God pursued me. So any correction of another believer must begin with a redemptive purpose. And if that's not present in our hearts, if we, don't, if we just want to attack them, we've got to check our hearts before we confront them. But if we've got that purpose in mind, I love my brother and sister, I see them in sin, I want to go after them. We want the heart of God that seeks sinners. We want to go after them in hard moments. So it's not like we go after and confront somebody like a, like a soldier, like a combat soldier. Like we're in war, and I'm just going to go and I'm going to win this argument. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to shoot you up in your sin. You're going you're gonna to wise up. No, we, we go like a combat medic, like bullets whizzing around. We might get hurt. We might get wounded. It's, it's hard sometimes to confront people. You might get hit back by them and wounded in the process. It, it might be messy, but we go to them saying, I'm here to heal. I'm here to save. I'm here to help you. I'm not here to attack you. So with that, that in mind, let's look at the pattern Jesus gives us, the process Jesus gives us. Jesus calls us to go. Jesus calls us to go. Verse 15. What's that word mean? Go. It means go. Go. It's very simple. Go. Why? Save the sheep in the pit. When we see a, a sheep in the pit, oh, there's a sheep over there in the pit. He's getting dirty and messy, and I don't think he can get out. Maybe somebody else will walk around and save them every once in a while. No, Jesus says, go. Go after the sheep in danger in the pit. And he wisely and lovely gives us the process. And the process moves from informal to formal. And you'll notice, too, it stays as private as possible, narrow in scope as possible that we're going to see. So read along with me at verses 15 to 17. Direct your eyes to Scripture again. Verse 15 says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. 
that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. Great question here. Verse 15. What do you do when another, sin, when another Christian sins against you? What do you do in that moment? Kids, children, when a brother or a sister or a friend calls you a bad name or takes your toy or says, hey, there's one more cookie, I won't take it, and then takes it in front of your eyes and laughs at you about it, what do you do in that moment? When somebody sins against you, you scream at them, hey, that's my toy. Hey, I don't like being called that name. Don't do that to me. Do we smack him in the face to grab our toy back or to get him to stop talking? No, in that moment, you know what Jesus says we do? He says, go. Go to the person. Hey, you took my toy. I didn't like that very much. That hurt. That made me feel sad. I don't think God liked it either. Can I please have my toy back? You see the gentleness there, kid? Like, it's not demand. Like, give me my toy back. It's, like, please, like, that hurt me. Oh, that name you called me? I don't really like you call me that name. You go to them. Even before maybe you go to somebody else, you go to them, you try to work it out between you and him alone. Between you and her alone. And church, that's just a good illustration of what we all should be doing. Between you and him, you and her alone, we go to them. We pursue them. And Jesus lays out four steps on what that looks like. What's our pursuit of others look like? That's first, that's, that's first step. Go and tell. Verse 15 says, go and tell. Your Bible either says, if your brother sins against you, if your brother sins. Which is it? It's both. If your brother sins against you, or if you see a brother in sin, you go to them. Galatians 6 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So, shocking news, we're going to be sinned against. And if your brother sins against you, if your sister sins against you, you go to him and you tell him or her his sin. Her sin. This is a command. And this is normal and necessary pattern. That's what I want to get across. It's, it's normal and necessary. This is what happens between Christians. Let's remember a couple of principles as we do that. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Love each other earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So sometimes you're going to be offended or sinned against. And I think the right thing to do is cover that offense. It's not like we're, the lesson today isn't like every time you see anybody else sin, your spouse, your friend, boom, you go after them right away. Love covers offenses. So there are moments that we see something and we say, you know what, I'm going to cover this one today. It's not that bad. There's a one-off. I'm going to cover it. It's the first principle. second principle is, Jesus taught us in Matthew 7, before you go confront somebody, take the, that big old log that's in your eye, take it out. We've got to get that right. Why am I confronting them? Is there something in my life? Is there something I'm not seeing that I need to deal with? But with that in mind, if we see outward, if we see clear sin against us or against others, we see here that the responsibility falls first to us. To you and me. Not pastors, not, not even leaders, but you and me. That's where it starts. We're called to seek peace with believers. And here's the thing, church. We're not called to be passive or to run from conflict. We're not called to see somebody 
who sins against us, and you know, man, I'm, I kind of like that relationship. I don't like them anymore. I'm going to be passive. I'm not going to pursue them. Or, you know, I'm just going to dismiss them. I got, I got other friends. I got other family members. I'm going to go hang out with them now. I'm not going to fellowship with them now. I've seen people do this. You run from fellowship. You run from a friend. You run from a family. You run from the church because you got a problem with somebody. And you just, I'm out of here. I'm done with this. I'll go find somebody else I can get along with. Somebody who doesn't sin against me. Good luck with that one. I've seen this happen, church. Christians strive for peace. Christians pursue reconciliation. They don't grow passive or avoid conflict when they see an issue. They don't run from it. They run to the person even when it's messy and difficult. They don't start bitterness and division in their heart against somebody else. They, they work it out. They pursue reconciliation. Matthew 5.24, Jesus even taught this earlier. He said, if you're about to give a gift on the altar and you realize there's an issue with another person, another brother or sister in the church, you leave the gift and you go pursue that person. Like it should even interrupt our involvement in corporate worship. We go after somebody in that moment when we see that there's an issue between us. So we go to another believer. We confront them. And notice verse 15, you, you tell them the fault between you and him alone. Right? I don't see any gossip here. I don't see any whispering around like to somebody else. Hey, so-and-so did this to me. I didn't like it. What do you think? There's no gossip. There's, there's none of that. There's no whispering. We're content if no one else knows about it at this point. Between you and him alone, you go work it out. Why? We care about that person's reputation. We're not trying to spread things and tell everybody about it. We go and try to see if we can work it out between you and him alone. And that's hard to do. That's hard to do. What, usually when we're sinned against, the first reaction for us is, ah, I've got to go talk to somebody else about it. And we just share criticism of everybody else. We just share stories. And it's so easy to talk about people instead of talking to people, going to them. But Jesus says this is normal and necessary to go to them in private. And that is a necessary thing for us to do. What does this look like? In our home, usually, it looks like Abby confronting me and my son just a couple weeks ago. My, my son isn't doing what I want him to do. I asked him to do a job. He's really slow and just not moving very quickly. He's not feeling well at the same time. He's not really, you know, he's got a headache. He's not feeling very well. But my reaction in that moment is, hey, come on, let's get going. You got to get done. Obedience, I want quick obedience. I want you to do what I said. I need to get this job done. That's my priority in this moment. And he's not doing it. And so eventually got done and moved on. What did Abby do? She saw me in sin. She saw me speaking harshly with my son. She didn't pause. Hey, kids, listen up. Hey, daddy's sinning right now. Daddy's sinning, and you all need to, you need to repent, and he needs to repent, and, for, and you need to ask forgiveness from all of you. Let's do it right now. She didn't do that. She let it play out. It wasn't too serious, but I was being harsh with my kid, with my son. She, she asked me later, she said, hey, you sound a little harsh with him, a little short with him. You know, I see what you're trying to do. You want, you know, he's not feeling very well. There wasn't a lot of grace in your voice. It was just a little harsh. Loving, you see that loving, gentle, privately, just, she's coming to me. You know what I did? But, but, I'm trying to explain myself right away. Eventually, I hit, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I had a good intention, but mixed with a lot of bad intentions too. I wanted my way. I had to repent. 
Repent to her for how I led the family in that moment. And then go to my son, repent to him, ask him to forgive you. Go to him alone and say, hey, daddy sinned against you. Can you forgive me? You see how that plays out? She pursued me one-on-one, privately, humbly, and I go to my son. I own my sin. I repent of it. I turn. I ask him for forgiveness. We, we go to the person privately motivated, but a genuine love, care, and concern for them. You know what happens when they repent? We go to somebody and they say, yeah, you're right. I sinned. I sinned against God. I sinned against you. You know what? What do we do in that moment? We rejoice. But you see, that's what the shepherd does. He finds a sheep, he rejoices. James 5, 19 and 20 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's something to rejoice about. I saved you, you were wandering, and now there's a multitude of sins. I saved you from death. Okay, can a little sin lead you to death? Probably not right away, but little sins can become big sins. So when we go after somebody and they, they repent and they turn, that's cause for rejoicing, to be overjoyed in that moment. Because we gain our brother and sister. We win them back. You know what happens when they, when they repent? What we do in that moment? We eagerly assure them of our forgiveness. We're going to learn about next week. We forgive them. And then right after that, we say, you know who else forgives you? Jesus Christ. First John, first John 1 John 1.9, if you confess your sins, he's going to be faithful and just to forgive you your sins. You take him back to the cross and say, your sins against me, I'm not going to remember them anymore. And you know who else isn't going to remember them? Jesus washes you clean. He forgives you of those sins. And just pause real quick on that. If through this message, if through listening to Jesus' parable, Jesus' teaching, you're like, hey, I think I might be one of those who's wondering I'm here this morning, but if I'm honest, my life is characterized by giving in to sin, not repenting of it, wandering away. The lesson, the call for you this morning is to turn and to come to Jesus. You know what you're going to find when that happens? When you repent of your sins, you turn to Jesus. You're going to find open arms, full forgiveness in that moment. You're wandering from the fold Jesus pursues you and calls you to come on right back. That's the call for you this morning. And then you're going to find that there's no freedom outside the sheep pen. There's so much freedom in being close to the shepherd, close to Jesus Christ. This is what it looks like to be a disciple. Daily discipleship. That's what Hebrews 3 says. Hebrews 3.13 says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So let's think about this. What's today called? Today's today. So while it's called today, let's think about this. Is there somebody else in this church, a family member perhaps outside of this church, or a friend, another Christian, and you're aware of another person's sin against you, or aware of someone caught in sin? Go to them this afternoon. That sounds really easy to do. I'm oversimplifying it. It's, it's hard to do that. But the call is go to them. Go to them. Privately, humbly, lovingly pursue them as Jesus pursues you. And you know what? Maybe the Lord wants to remind some of us this morning. I've been reminded of this studying this passage. Some of us have been doing that. We have been pursuing. We, we, we're close to somebody who's just straying from the Lord. Who's left the church, maybe. Who's left fellowship with us. Perhaps we know somebody who has been put under church discipline. 
another member of this church, maybe a former member of this church, a friend, a family member. And the reminder for Jesus this morning, for us, the encouragement for us this morning, don't give up the sheep. Don't desert the sheep. Go after the sheep. Pursue them. Be faithful. Try again. Have the heart of Christ that goes after the wandering sheep. So we go after somebody. And church, on the flip side, you know the flip side's coming. If somebody comes to you this afternoon and says, hey, you know, I'm trying to apply this passage, you know, what he said, I saw some sin in your life and I want to approach you on that. If somebody does that to you about 2 o'clock this afternoon, don't brush them off. Listen to them. Be willing to receive that correction and examine yourself in that moment. Because here's the thing. We need each other to point out sin in our lives because we don't see it. We're blind to our sin. I'm blind to my own sin. We, I need you all to see my sin and be a mirror to me. It's like, it's like I'm walking around or we're walking around with a piece of lettuce stuck in our teeth. You know those moments? I would really like if somebody told me that there's something stuck in my teeth and not for me to spend the next month of my life not getting it out. So I need you all to tell me in that moment. And we all need each other. The same way, when we see one another sinning against each other, or we see sin that's repeated, 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 we go after each other. Hey, you know, I think there's some lettuce stuck in your teeth. Can I help get it out? Or maybe, maybe you got it. Maybe you can get it out. You know, however you want to do this. But lovingly, gently go into them in that moment. What if you go to somebody who's got lettuce stuck in their teeth, and you say, hey, I think you got some lettuce stuck in your teeth. And like, how dare you? Jesus would never judge me. Jesus would never point that out. You mind your own business. Not, don't talk to me about my thing. Don't talk to me about my sin. I'm not sinning here. What do we do when that happens? When someone refuses to listen to us, who denies their sin, who says, I'm not doing anything wrong. They persist in their sin. Jesus says, step two, we bring in witnesses. Verse 16, we bring in witnesses. We get help. This requires a judgment call. Try to talk to the person. You pray. You ask for wisdom. You're patient. Maybe you cover this offense. You know, maybe this is like, okay, this is not a big deal. It's not a serious sin. What kind of sins are we talking about? We're talking about sins that could grow and continue to spread. And we're saying, you know, maybe I cover this. Maybe I keep praying about this. I pursued reconciliation. And I think the Lord wants to continue going after them. What's the next step in that situation? You bring in two to three witnesses. This goes back to Deuteronomy 19, where two to three witnesses were required to bring a judicial case to the court. So you go bring in two people, not witnesses necessarily who saw the sin or who can say, yeah, let's talk about it. Maybe they didn't see the sin. But witnesses in the sense that they're going to sit down with you, observe your confrontation with this person, say, yeah, it seems like there's an issue here. And if they see that there's clear sin, say, hey, to you, brother or sister who's sinning, I'm going to appeal to you as well. Repent. Turn to Jesus and turn away from your sin to show them how serious their sin. Now it's taken not just one person going after you, but two more, three more in this moment. Why, why so serious? Because a Christian should never accept sin. We should be quick to repent. So if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I think I see sin and we don't want to repent, it's going to take two people, three more people to say, hey, I don't think you're seeing what's going on in your life. As a way to care for them. So who do you bring? 
Remember Galatians 6.1, those who are spiritual. So perhaps your community group leader. Somebody from your community group. So, somebody wise and discerning. Somebody spiritual. Somebody, maybe not necessarily your pastor right away at this point, but you bring in somebody else, a few other people, and you go to them, you sit down with them. And notice, you don't take any other steps. You have a meeting, you, you call out the sin, you talk about it, you don't take any other steps until it's clear that the person in sin refuses to repent. Like they're still at the same page. They refuse to listen. So you remain patient in prayer, but you're looking for genuine repentance. You're cautious. But what if that person continues to refuse you? They don't even listen to the two to three people. And they're still not listening to you. And they, they're like, I like this sin. I'm going to keep doing it. Who do at that point? Verse 17, Jesus says, step three, that we, we tell the church. Often here you would bring in the pastors. Jesus doesn't specify that, but it's implied a part of the process. The pastors are brought in. You explain the situation. They make an appeal. And if the person refuses, the pastors begin a formal church discipline process. What, kind of, what are we talking about here? Are you talking about like just simple sins? Are you talking about like, yeah, I, had, I was a little prideful today. Are we talking about besetting sins? Just things that we struggle with. Like we're all trying to... We're all trying to fight sin, right? We're struggling against sin. Are you going to rush to bring in two to three witnesses? Are you going to rush to tell the pastors? Are you going to rush? No, we're not talking about those. We're continuing to fight those sins. But we're talking about a person who is just characterized by a life of unrepentance. Like they have shown no signs that they're repenting of their sin. We're talking about somebody who is given in to scandalous sin or sexual sin or things that are divisive that will divide the church, that will spread eventually in the church. Those are, we see Paul talk about those types of sins. Things are scandalous. Outward. They, they might have an effect. If we don't address this situation, it might have an effect on the whole church. So this is a way that we care for the church by addressing this, by bringing it to the pastors. And when we do that, why do we go to the pastors? Well, First Peter 5 says the pastors, the elders, shepherd the flock in their care. Hebrews 13, 17 says they are to account for the souls in their care. So, so the pastors take responsibility for church members and lead in telling a part of the church or eventually the whole church, not in that moment to render judgment or to embarrass a person, but as a whole church, church-wide appeal, you're in sin and you're going to a dangerous place. Come back. The whole church at this point. You've appealed privately, friends have appealed, the pastors have appealed, and now they bring in the whole church to pursue the wandering sheep. And it, you know what happens in that moment? If the brother or sister returns and repents of their sin, the church welcomes them back. They don't say, okay, you repented, but here's a scarlet letter that you're going to put on your jacket for the rest of your life. You're going to own this sin. We're going to remind you of this sin. No, the church welcomes them back into fellowship. Yeah, we went through a long journey with you, but you came back and we rejoice. And we were overjoyed in that moment. Renewed fellowship that's only possible through the gospel. Because here's the thing. Outside of Jesus pursuing us, keeping us, we'd all be wondering. We would all be lost. So that's cause for rejoicing when somebody comes back. What if they don't? What if they continue to refuse at that point? Jesus says, step four, we treat them like an unbeliever. Like a, like a Gentile or tax collector. We see that in verse 17. Gentile or tax collector, people who are outside the community. And after a time, judgment is rendered. 1 Corinthians 5 details this process. That's a good study this week. 1 Peter 5 details the process. What do you do when you have an unrepentant sin that a person just characterizes? There's causing scandal and division. There's so much going on here. What do you do in that moment? Paul says... He's detailing a, a man who is sleeping with his stepmom 
And the whole church knows about it. And here's what Paul says, verse 4, 1 Corinthians 5. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are delivered the man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. When does that happen? When a person is caught in reckless and serious sin, and you see no signs of repentance. And what happens? The church declares that they can no longer affirm this person's profession of faith. Church doesn't know for sure. Only God knows that. God knows the heart. But the church says this person, as much as we can tell, as much as we can see, you know, judging the fruit of his life, he's living outside of the step with the gospel, and we don't believe he's saved. We don't believe she's saved. And as Paul says in First Corinthians five, we remove the leaven, the divisiveness, the thing that could spread. We remove the leaven from the church. We remove the church member from the church. What does that mean? Church still the person's still welcome to come on a Sunday morning and attend church. Not welcome to take the Lord's Supper together. We would ask them not to go to community group and have biblical fellowship because it's not po- they're not part of the family anymore. They're not part of the family. We want them to come back and be part of the family, but something's changed. The relationships changed in that moment. They're not part of the family anymore. And let me tell you, we've been involved in a few of these. When, when pastors deal with these, when your pastors of the church deal with these situations, they are they're heavy. They are grave. They are somber. They are full of much prayer. They are full of many letters and appeals and personal conversations. It's a long, drawn-out process. Often, many meetings. Not, it's done in love and in hope because the desire is that all might be saved. So we hold out this desire and hope. We love you enough to go after you. Continue and draw this out. We love you enough to call the sin out in your life and pursue you. Why do we do this? It's Jesus' process. He commanded it. And so we obey. Under the fear of God, we seek to have a church that as best as we can tell is full of true disciples. We're all true disciples here. We've been received in church membership and in baptism. But if necessary, church discipline happens to say, we want to maintain a true witness in the world. We want to honor the reputation of Jesus Christ. We want a pure church that as best we can tell is full of true disciples walking in obedience to Jesus who have given their lives over to them. And so this whole process, church, it's walked out in love. Love for the church, love for Jesus, love for the person caught in sin. Love that's willing even to model itself after God's love who is willing to discipline the one he loves. Like we got parents here this morning, right? I'm a parent. We discipline our children because we love them. God disciplines his children because he loves them. So we, as a church, we're willing to even discipline another member because we love them. And we want to see them come back. The reality is, some of us have friends who have strayed, who are straying right now, who have been put under church discipline. We served with them. We, we worshipped alongside them. We, we met in their homes for community group. Perhaps some names are coming to mind. What do we do about that? Like, were they never saved? Or do they have a hard heart and we will see years later them come back in that moment? We, we don't know. We can't see the heart. God knows the heart. We can't see it. So what is it, where does that leave us in those moments? You have something in your mind, you're thinking about what does that leave, where does that leave you? What are you supposed to do with that? Jesus would call you to have hope. Romans 5.20 says this gospel hope where sin abounds, 
Grace abounds all the more. So I see a lot of sin in this person's life. I, I don't even know if they're a Christian anymore. I see so much sin. But I know that God's grace abounds, so I'm going to continue to pursue them. I'm going to continue to show them grace. And I'm going to call them to come to Jesus with arms open wide who will give them grace. How much? Who cares how much sin you have when you come to Jesus Christ? Grace abounds all the more. Because Jesus' arms are open wide to sinners like you and me. So we have, what, what's that look like? It's... You remember the prodigal son and his father? It's standing, it's scanning the horizon, looking for that person, and always being ready, always being expectant with their arms wide open. If they come back home, we're not going to... You know, if they come back home repenting, please forgive me. We're not going to discard them. We're not going to remind them. Here's, all, here's a hundred other things that you did wrong. We're, we're going to accept them. We're going to welcome them back into fellowship. When they turn from their sin, when they turn to Jesus and they come back to us, we welcome them. We hug them. We put the robe on them. We welcome them and we have a meal with them. We say, come back into the family. You are part of this family again because you are part of Jesus' family because you have turned to him and turned from your sin. And we rejoice. That's a celebration in that moment. And I long for those moments. But you all know, church, this is, these are difficult these are agonizing situations. And so, as we, as we look at this last point, Jesus moves on to give us three promises to encourage us as we walk this out, as we pursue things when they're messy and hard. So, point number three, the promises. We're going to look at this real briefly. We see these in three promises in verses 18 to 20. So, verse 18, first, Jesus promises that when church discipline occurs... He's in it, and he stands behind the church. Verse 18 says, that, says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. If you remember, these words were almost identical to what Jesus told Peter in Matthew 16. Now he's talking to the whole church, to his disciples, and he's saying, whatever you bind, whatever you loose, you have authority to do that from God himself. You are allowed to open and close the doors of the kingdom of heaven. You have the keys to that. God knows ultimately who's part of his children, but he gives the church authority to say, we believe that you are part of this church. We believe that you are not. And so when a church makes a judgment in obedience to him to remove a member of the church, there's legitimate, unrepentant, outward sin. It reflects the judgment that he's already made in heaven and God stands behind it. And he delegates that authority to the church. That's promise number one. Secondly, we see that Jesus promises that the Father will act on behalf of the church in that moment. Verse 19 says, Jesus says, I, Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. The Father will act. Often people use this verse and they see in it a promise that any prayer that two believers pray and speak, God's going to answer it. But let's remember the context. These, these are people who just went through a church discipline process, a very hard process, and they're agreeing on a church discipline matter, and God says he's going to respond. So when we cover these hard matters, these issues in prayer, we ask God for wisdom, for direction. And if a church agrees to bind someone, to hand them over to Satan, Jesus says the Father himself will do as we request. He will hand them over to Satan that ultimately they might be saved. And on the other hand, if the doors have been loosed, that's the other flip, flip side of the coin, if the doors have been loosed or open and you stand here in good standing in a church, that should bring full assurance that you stand as a child of God, that Jesus sees you as a child of God. 
It's the authority on both sides. And we see one last promise here that, 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 that Jesus is present. Jesus is present. Look at verse 20 with me. For two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This doesn't mean that Jesus is only present when two or three are gathered. If you go to your bedroom tonight, or you go to your living room by yourself, Jesus is present there with you. But there's something that when two or three are gathered, like we're gathering right now, we're more than two or three, but there's Jesus is especially present here to bless us when we gather. But, but especially here in this context, when two or three people are gathered, when two or three people are gathered to make a difficult decision, church discipline decision, in that moment, when they are gathered together, look at the concept. And a lot of that's going on. Things are exploding all around them. You've been so patient with that. I don't know what's going on, but we're almost done here. When two or more agree, even in the last stage of church discipline, when the church agrees in the last stage of church discipline, Jesus promises to be present with his disciples in that moment. What's he doing? He's affirming them. He's strengthening them. He's supporting them when they're doing the hard task of going after a wandering brother and sister. And so church, as we, as we close this morning, these promises here that Jesus ends with, these are meant to encourage us. Encourage us to cover these difficult things in prayer, to bathe them in prayer. And church, so let's, let's lean in. Let's lean in to pursuing one another in love. Maybe you, you, at the end of this message, you're like, I, I feel like I don't really have an issue with anybody else in this church right now. Great. Praise God for His grace in that moment. But if we see someone else sinning against us, if we see someone else caught in sin, let's pursue them in love. Even when it's hard, when it's messy, let's be ready to forgive. Knowing that God stands behind us as we do it and He sends us out to go after the wandering sheep. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. I so appreciate that you have given us your word. We are so thankful for your gracious gift that guides us. And I pray for, for all of us here as we think about this, as we think about whether or how quickly or when to apply this. God, we just need wisdom. Oh, we need discernment. These are hard situations. We need your help to overcome temptations to not say anything, to avoid conflict. We need your strength. We need to see this as a privilege, as a responsibility. We need your help with that. Help us to be reminded today of your mercy, your grace, how you pursued us. As we sang about earlier, as we've talked about, you pursued us. You, you showed us incredible mercy. But help us to be willing and able to have that same heart. But I just, I pray as well. For those that we know who are wandering right now, who are straying, kids, daughters, friends, former community group members, whatever it might be, pray that you bring them back. Bring them back here into the fold and we might rejoice. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand with me. We're going to end our service by going to the Lord's table together. And here's what we're doing. We're reminding ourselves of how God pursued us. How God reconciled himself to us. How God gave his 